This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, MD Advantage, UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and answers all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and welcome to this program. Uh, Today is a taped program uh, in the sense that it is new information, but uh, it is taped, so we will not be taking any calls today. My guest is going to be Dr. Corey Edgar. Um, I taped an interview with Dr. Edgar. Dr. Edgar is an assistant professor of orthopedic surgery. He's an MD, PhD, and he's going to talk to us about ligamentous injuries to the knee. So these are those injuries you always hear about, right? Medial collateral or cruciate ligament injuries. What does all that mean in terms of how does it happen? How do you fix those problems? And how do we get athletes back? And I think that's important for everyone to know. We're going to talk a little bit about the differences in turf and how artificial turf has affected these injuries and also about some non-operative repairs. Some of these things are being fixed without surgery. So uh, with that, we're going to you're going to have a great interview with him later in the show. So we heard again about the baseball netting controversy. Another child last Sunday was hit by a baseball after being batted by a baseball player at the major league level. This should not be a controversy. I haven't heard anyone, I haven't heard one person say they're against putting up netting. And in fact, when they polled fans, 79% were in favor of doing it now. It has not obstructed their view, and you can be much safer. What has changed? Well, the baseball is livelier. We are living in the era where home runs abound. So that means the ball is coming off the bat faster, and there are more distractions from the part of the fans. The sad part is it's hit so many children. So... Major League Baseball needs to get on the stick here. Several teams have signed on that they're going to do it. One team has done it, the Chicago White Sox. I'm tired of hearing excuses. It depends on the geometry of the stadium. Uh, And the only way things change is if fans make their feelings known. And how do you make your feelings known? You don't go sit in those seats. Don't go to the stadium. Guess what? Those things will be going up in a few hours. So I have to tell you, when it comes to safety, when it comes to the netting, we all need to band together and sadly need to push Major League Baseball to doing the right thing. Colorectal cancer rates are rising in younger adults under the age of 50. This is an interesting trend, and really it's been a slow rise since the 1970s. And generally, when we find it in these younger adults, it's more severe. The reason being is that we really don't recommend that 
people start getting colonoscopies until age 50. Now, in the past, it was age 40, and then it got changed again. So here's the point is that we need to be more mindful of colorectal cancer, even in young people. Now, here's the good news to that. Even though we're seeing more of it, it's, we have better treatments for colorectal cancer, and the death rate from colorectal cancer has come down. So, again, it's a surprising statistics from, statistic from that standpoint, but nevertheless, it, we have to be more wary and more mindful. If you're having GI problems or your physician recommends it, get the colonoscopy. It is the test that will tell right away and help you initiate treatment. This day in medicine, Dr. Niels Stenson uh, matriculated at the University of Leiden. Now, Dr. Stenson's an interesting fellow. He was a neuroanatomist, a scientist, and he is from Denmark. So he's a Danish scientist, and he really did a lot of high-end work on defining the anatomy of the human brain in the 1600s. What was interesting about his life is that when he passed away, he was impoverished. And what happened was he started to do missionary work, helping the poor, and with that got no reimbursement, but did tremendous work and is remembered in the scientific community, not only for his scientific contributions, but his contributions as a humanitarian. The last thing I want to talk about today is the ongoing discussion on whether to take a baby aspirin every day. Millions of people who take a baby aspirin every day to present a heart, prevent a heart attack are now rethinking this. The latest study from Harvard researchers did not show any advantage to doing this unless you have a history, either your personal history or family history, of heart disease. Now, we've discussed this on the program before, and, and this is the good part of quality science, is that you could sit down, use good data, and argue a point. And in this case, I believe the jury's still out. So there are about 29 million people who are 40 years of age or older who are taking aspirin, despite having no history of heart disease. And that was in the data in 2017. The latest data available from Harvard Medical shows that about 6.6 million of them were just doing so on their own. That was never recommended by their doctors. So this is another one of those things where you read the article and say, well, maybe I need to just stop taking the baby aspirin. So although I not, don't like to use personal examples, I've been taking a baby aspirin since I was 35. And most physicians, at least at that time, we're taking a baby aspirin every day because the data at that time were clear that it avoided stroke and heart attack. It's a little foggy now as to whether or not you're putting yourself at more risk by taking the baby aspirin. This is why we have doctors. You have a family doctor. You have a primary care doctor who knows you, knows your history. And with that, you can have a discussion with your physician. I did this year, and he recommended that I continue taking a baby aspirin, so I'm still doing it. That doesn't mean it's right.
for everybody. It's right for me. And that's why I trust my doctor from that standpoint. So when you read this information, it doesn't mean I'm just going to stop taking it. It means there's a question that needs to be answered. And in doing so, you should have a frank conversation about this and other topics with your primary care physician. Next up, we're going to be chatting with Dr. Corey Edgar, Assistant Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of Connecticut, where he specializes in sports injuries and particularly injuries to the knee. We're going to be chatting about ligamentous injuries to the knee. And we're going to take a short break. As a reminder, this is a taped program, so we are not taking calls this week. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. This is Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today I'm happy to have as my guest uh, Dr. Corey Edgar. For information, today's show is being taped, so we won't be taking questions. Um, But this is all new information. Uh, Dr. Edgar is an assistant professor of orthopedic surgery at the University of Connecticut, and he's an MD, PhD. Corey, welcome to the show. It's great to be on the show, Tony. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about your background. So how did you get to where you are? What was your education like? Where did you go to college? And, And give our listeners some uh, idea of your training to get here. So, um, fun and long road uh, to get to this point. Uh, I grew up in uh, suburbia in Chicagoland uh, and actually went to college locally out there, uh, a baseball scholarship, and uh, struck up a friendship with a local orthopedist uh, through some injuries, as most of us end up in this path do. Uh, and uh, kind of developed a mentorship that led me on my career path uh, into medicine. Interestingly, I had a strong science background and always was very interested in the uh, nature of things and how they work and uh, had a major in molecular and cell biology, so from a basic science standpoint, and was always sort of torn between should I go be a researcher or a physician, and patient care to me is uh, the most satisfying thing, so I decided to combine them both Uh, and go to MD-PhD, which I did in Boston. So you got that at Boston University? At Boston University, yeah. So I went there uh, and did uh, both a combined program where uh, you spend the first two years doing medical school training like everybody else, uh, typically more didactic. Uh, When everybody went to clinicals, I stayed back and did my uh, three years of PhD work Uh, in the laboratory of, happened to be our chairman of orthopedics at the time, uh, Professor uh, Thomas Einhorn, who's very famous uh, for bone biology and fracture healing, uh, basic science and mechanics. So I was lucky enough to earn my PhD in uh, biochemistry and cell biology, working uh, out some of the molecular uh, pathways by which fractures heal uh, and the timing uh, of the genetics on how they stimulate themselves to form this cascade of events that we call a fracture healing callus. So how many years altogether did you have in training before you became an attending? So seven years for medical school and PhD. Then, of course, I do a residency in orthopedic surgery, which is five years, which I also stayed and did at BU because I had a good relationship and I had a very strong mentor at that point 
and not only my science mentor, Tom Einhorn, but also my orthopedic sports mentor and Tony Skepsis. Uh, and after that five years, I came to the University of Connecticut for my fellowship uh, and a year of that. And then I was an attending back at BU where I trained. Uh, the landscape changed and I was offered a job here at the University of Connecticut. And that was about a two-second phone call from uh, my mentor, Bob Arciero, for me to agree to come back uh, to this uh, amazing place. What got you interested in the knee? Now, I know you do more than the knee, but you're well known for patellofemoral disorders and ligamentous injuries to the knee. Uh, what got you interested in the knee as a joint? Well, so I've always been a little fascinated with the knee in and of itself, just because uh, of some basic principles of the mechanics and how it works. And it just so happened that, just so happened that the person that I mentioned, Dr. Anthony Skepsis, was sort of a pioneer in patellofemoral kneecap, patella, femoral, where it articulates. So the kneecap joint of the knee. He was a pioneer. So I was very close with him and did a lot of research with him and learned a lot from him. So. It's a, it's a very interesting problem because it's not as cut and dry as broken bone, need to fix broken bone. It's very uh, different from patient to patient because of just risk, risk factors, different scenarios. So it's a very cognitive problem, meaning you have to think about it more than just black and white. Uh, so I'm very uh, interested in that. And then I came to the University of Connecticut and John Fulkerson, who's also another pioneer I trained with. So. I've become very interested in this, and then there's a small orthopedic community, patellofemoral group and study group, in which we sort of have a closed meeting where we discuss these things. So it's been something that has been very fulfilling to me, and patients often have seen multiple people. They don't really understand what's going on, so it's very satisfying to me when they come in and we can really uh, change their course that they often have been struggling with for sometimes years. Is that how you got into sports? I mean, in the idea of sports and the knee? So I would say yes. Uh, obviously, one of the benefits of being a sports medicine surgeon is we are here to improve quality of life. So from a physician, surgeon, treating a patient standpoint, it's super gratifying and uh, the satisfaction levels through the roof because a lot of our patients, you know, especially as you know with neurology, like, you know, we are here uh, for our patients and uh, it's an immediate satisfaction because a lot of things we can do to treat a certain thing and get people back to what they love to do, which is recreational, professional, collegiate, high school sports play. We're going to take a short break and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Corey Edgar. Today's show is uh, a taped program, and we're talking about ligamentous injuries to the knee and specifically uh, what are termed patellofemoral disorders. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back with my guest today, Dr. Corey Edgar, who's an MD, PhD here at the University of Connecticut and an assistant professor of orthopedic surgery, specializing in sports injuries. Corey, we always hear about various ligamentous injuries to the knee, right? Medial collateral ligament. I mean, this has almost become part of the, the nomenclature for fans, okay, who watch football, right, out with an MCL, an LCL, right? So people have learned a lot about these ligamentous injuries over the years. Can you tell our audience a little bit about them? What, what are the common ones 
um, in terms of what they need to know when they hear about these injuries. For example, the MCL, fairly common injury that we see all the time, but are they rated in different ways or what should people know? So great question, obviously comes up uh, uh, very often. So the one thing to remember when you think about these injuries, so the knee is basically, imagine like a box, okay? There is a bar on both sides, and then there's two bars that cross in the middle. So the bar on the inside is the medial collateral ligament. The bar on the, on the outside is the lateral collateral ligament. And the two things that cross in the middle that prevent the box from rotating are the anterior cruciate ligament and the posterior cruciate, cruciate meaning crossing. So how the knee is injured plays specifically into what gets injured. So oftentimes in football, what happens is someone gets a lateral or outside, so gets hit from the side across their body, which we call valgus, below across the knee. So what happens is the box opens up and the inside bar gets injured. So gradations, as you mentioned, right? So we typically grade them as one, two, and three. So one being good, meaning less injury, three being bad, more injury. Gradation just means that this sort of bar, this ligament, which is basically just collagen that it connects one piece of the bone to the other piece of the bone, i.e. the femur to the tibia, um, can get injured either it pops off one side or the other or in the mid-substance. Typically, it pops off one side or the other. Most commonly, femoral side. So what happens is, is there's a bleeding response, and a lot of times, low-grade, grade one injuries, which we typically see, you know, the... Uh, the Zion Williams uh, shoe blowout sure. injury. All of those are moments across that knee bar joint that that ligament gets stretched. The body gets has to be shut down a little bit, protected, scar forms, the ligament heals, no problem. The outside ligaments, the ACL and the, the excuse me, the MCL and the LCL, which are outside of the joint, have great blood supply. They heal awesome in, in isolation, typically on their own. The ACL and the PCL, which are inside the joint, have a different blood supply. Therefore, ACLs often don't heal. So we often see people with ACL injuries, which is a rotational problem, symptomatic rotational problem, i.e. instability. They often don't heal, which is often what people ask, because the blood supply and the mechanics of inside the joint versus outside the joint are very different. So that's why people with isolated MCLs almost never require surgery. People with isolated ACLs almost always require surgery if they want to get back to their previous level of function. Along those lines, how much does turf play a role in these injuries? We're seeing more and more schools going to artificial turf, and that has clearly played a role, and many people believe the uptick in these knee injuries is getting away from natural turf and going to artificial turf. So can you explain to our listeners a little bit about how turf plays a role in these knee injuries? Sure. So it's really about, uh, for lack of a medical term to make it more clear, stickiness, okay? So typically the knee injuries are oftentimes non-contact. So what we were talking about with the football player is a contact below from the outside. Great example is Zion, non-contact. Even though a shoe blew out, it was stuck, knee moved, non-contact injury. So in these turf fields, it's really about giving way of the cleat or the shoe on a surface. The grass surface typically gives way, depends on you know the surface and so forth, but often gives way a little easier. So when someone plants and cuts, if the shoe sticks hard, and even if there's a little bit of force across their upper body, there's a rotational force across the knee or a 
varus valgus, meaning movement across the knee that injures a ligament. So there was a big up, uptick when we went to uh, the early generations of turf fields. AstroTurf. Correct. That has been, for the most part, dealt with with these more breakaway, newer surf turfaces. Excuse me. <laughs> these newer turf surfaces. surfaces. Not easy. Uh, not easy to say. So, um, you know, you typically, you know, it's the, the tire segments in the turf or, or different types of textures, and those are actually much more similar in terms of injury rates to the natural grass fields, which is less maintenance. So I think we're getting there from a science standpoint, and it's at this point, most of the turf fields are just as safe as the grass fields. Uh, it's the old astroturfs that were really the problem. What's what makes patellofemoral tendon injuries different than the ones you described? The MCL, LCL, and cruciate ligament injuries. What makes patellofemoral injuries different? So, um, so the kneecap really is providing a mechanical advantage across a motion as your quadriceps muscle tries to extend your knee going up a stair, right. accelerating, right? So it's different. It's, it's providing a mechanical force across a range of motion versus the other ligaments are just providing stability. So therefore, this is more dynamic than static. The other ones are just static. This is dynamic, so it has a muscle response. It has very um, uh, affected by the angles of the joint and position sure. and ligament laxity and stuff like that, which are genetic factors that people have. Also, the bone morphology, meaning the shape of the bone of the patella and the shape of the bone of the distal femur that's called the trochlea. And those two things have a surface area that's important. So if, if that groove is more shallow, we call that dysplasia, then people are more prone to having the kneecap slip out. So with that, um, how, do, so how does someone know? Is the first symptom pain or they can't walk on it? How does somebody know they had a patellofemoral injury. So in the extreme situation, when someone dislocates, meaning the kneecap pops out often, almost 99.9% .9 of the time, it pops out to the outside. Um, I mean, it literally pops out. It literally it's pops out. Okay. Yep, yep. Okay. You people will know it because their muscle's not working. They often can't get up. Sometimes they feel like they can't straighten their knee. Sure. So that's a traumatic thing, and people know it. There are a little lower grade injuries that are called subluxations where the kneecap wants to go out, someone feels something weird happen, and then the injury happens. A lot of times the kneecap will immediately pop back in and sometimes people have this knee swelling that's a result, they have knee pain, and a lot of times people think that they had torn ACL, which oftentimes looks the same until you kind of look, give the good exam and get an MRI and stuff like that and lo and behold they had a patella dislocation. So most of the time we can treat them conservatively, meaning we provide a brace. We actually want to get you moving very quickly because mm -hmm. the function of the quadriceps is essential to the pain and, and ability to move the knee. Sure. So actually getting people moving quicker is some of the things that, that we as a patellofemoral study group have really pushed. Traditionally, we used to put people in casts and brace for four or five weeks, and that would really slow down their capability to progress. Now, if the kneecap keeps popping out, or if it pops out and it knocks off a piece of cartilage, then typically we have to do a surgical procedure to provide stabilization to the kneecap so it doesn't pop out anymore. So, 
let's take a short break because I want to get back to some of the new ways of treating this. We've talked a little bit already about, um, you know, getting off of it, bracing it, exercising, but um, there are so many new ways that you've been working on in your lab and other people have been working on. We're going to take a short break and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Corey Edgar on Healthy Rounds. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And in this final segment, I'm chatting with Dr. Corey Edgar, Assistant Professor of Orthopedic Surgery and an MD-PhD. And Corey, we talked about some of the treatments of ligamentous injuries to the knee, but what intrigues everybody the most is the non-operative approaches to this. And I know that you've done a lot of work with growth factors, even in your early days of your PhD. How much does that play a role? Are there non-operative approaches now to repairing ligaments of the knee after injuries? So the answer to that is we're getting there. Uh, Yes. So certainly there are growth factors, which the one that everybody's most familiar with is sort of a uh, uh, platelet-rich plasma, which is basically uh, blood that's spun down. We take off the sort of less cellular content, and we use that as an injection. That has a lot of growth factors in these elements called platelets that are released. The problem is we can't control which growth factors are, they're just sort of there, but it causes a very robust inflammatory response. Those have been implemented for 10, 15 years, and they work well for tendonitis problems, okay, so chronic inflammation. Augmentation or speeding up a healing process requires more of a sort of direct approach, and we've been looking at combining scaffolds, things that can provide uh, more durable uh, tissue uh, for this process. A good friend of mine in Boston, she's doing pioneering research at looking at can we try to get sort of something that we talked about before that doesn't have great blood supply like the ACL to heal. Ironically, uh, she would do these repairs and she made this uh, synthetic scaffold, uh, which is a sponge that she puts in, in, in the knee and the thought process is we were going to deliver growth factors to heal the ACL. As it turns out, it actually protects, insulates the ACL from the growth factors that are probably negatively impacting it that were in the synovial fluid. So actually by protecting the ACL, it facilitates a healing process. So a lot of times with this, as we start out down the road of research and trying to figure out a way to do things, we often learn something that you know may not be as intuitive, but we're down the road of trying to figure out how to get these things to heal. So in the patellofemoral compartment, um, meaning the kneecap compartment, uh, we're using a lot of it with the ability to try to get the cartilage to heal, okay? Uh, We have been using some injections that help with anterior knee pain. Uh, Those are people that have malalignment or tracking problems. Uh, Growth factors don't work so well in that per se. We're typically using them to accelerate to augment a healing process. Uh, let's get to the, I want to get back to the ACL issue because obviously it's a big problem in sports and um, I had the honor of reviewing some of that research early on, which is funded by the National Football League Players Association now. And what I found interesting in the early research that was being done on pigs Mm -hmm. was that the arthritic factor wasn't there after the repair. And I don't think people understand that it's, after you repair an ACL traditionally, 
that knee becomes arthritic a lot sooner than it should right. from normal wear and tear. So how is it that by fixing it through a, after a synthetic scaffold that you avoid that? Well, so, so just to be clear, so I think one of the things you're referring to is there's actually a study, one of the guys um, from Yukon has made a synthetic scaffold. So that's, a, that's actually an ACL reconstruction, or in some cases we can augment to repair with basically a brace or something that supports The Boston it. study was with growth factor, though. Correct. So the, the Margaret McQueen study, or excuse right. me, the Murphy study is with growth factor. Correct. That is a primary repair. So you take the ACL, you suture it, you put, stick it back onto the bone, and then you cover it with the sponge. You can also put in scaffold to kind of hold it and augment it together. So the concept of why did the knees become arthritic, we don't know why. So it could be because you had the trauma of the ACL injury, and that started a cascade. Because the blood gets in the joint, and it starts a process that may kick the knee down the road towards a traumatic condition, a post-traumatic arth- uh, hematoma, blood that leads it to an arthritic condition. Most likely, if there is residual instability, then the knee moves too much, meniscus gets injured, cartilage gets damaged, and then that's the easy way that people get arthritis. Because we know if you take meniscus out, it's bad for the knee. If you get cartilage injury, it's bad for the knee. So why do people that get surgeries go on to arthritis, even though they might have a stable knee. Maybe it's lack of motion, maybe it's the trauma of the injury and then the surgery. We don't fully know. So I think that the more we can do to provide a stable knee and increase the person's quality of life and functionality, that may or may not lead to arthritis or arthritis protection, which is what what we're kind of talking about. So it's still a black box that we're trying to figure out, but I do think the biology behind what the response was, and it may end up being something where we try to protect the knee, with reducing the amount of blood exposure to the cartilage might be something that we can augment in the future that we're working on to sort of decrease the likelihood of post-traumatic arthritis. Corey, I gotta say, this is an exciting field uh, that you're in, and uh, we certainly appreciate having your talent here as well as many other folks here in the Department of Orthopedics um, at UConn. Um, Just wanna take time, thank you for taking time today Um, and explaining this to our listeners. It's my pleasure. I really enjoy talking about it. Mike Olko has been on the board. He's our studio producer today. Also, many thanks to Jeff Chandler, who's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next week, um, I will be on the road, um, so we will use a uh, taped uh, previous program as a best of. Please remember to help save lives. You can do that today by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Just go to registerme.org. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, MD Advantage, UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.